Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Andrew Mullally. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and it will always be from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. For the first time on Dr. Doctor, our guest today will be Sister Bridget Mary Meeks, a sister with the Religious Sisters of Mercy based in Elma, Michigan. She's also a lawyer, and hopefully she can help us explain some of the legal challenges related to Catholic hospitals, the problems that they face in our current climate, and also the relationship they have with their local bishop. Yeah, you know, we've had a sister who was a colonel and a surgeon. I don't think that we've had a religious uh, a religious who's a lawyer. This is the first, I think. Yeah, and that's, uh, I'm excited to, to hear from her because her order is very special. I'll let, I'll let her tell about it mm-hmm. a little bit, but they're all super educated in secular disciplines in addition to the spiritual disciplines, wow, that's which neat. is really cool. So, Chris, tell me just Catholic hospitals throughout your career. What's your experience been? Yeah, mine's been pretty limited. Uh, I have been involved uh, with a Catholic system, a, a large Catholic system that we shall not name, uh, <laughs> that's that's very large, and it was a it was a good experience. I would have to say overall, I think part of the challenges for me is I went in with some very high expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually a patient and was operated on in a Catholic hospital not too long ago, and I went in with some really high expectations. Um, which probably isn't fair to them, but you know, I was I was crucifix counting from the <laughs> from the from the minute that I walked in. That's um, funny, and that may not be fair. But I was also looking for signs that I'm not in just a hospital that decorates differently. Yeah, am I in a religious institution? So I, I would have to say it, it was a mix. You know, I had some sense of that, uh, but I also saw opportunities that I thought were really sorely uh, sorely missed. Yeah, it's interesting. I. In kind of preparing for the show a little bit, I took liberty of Googling Catholic hospitals. <laughs> and what came up to me was very interesting because it was mostly abortion-related stuff about what the Catholic hospitals can't do or won't do, uh, putting women at risk, et cetera. <laughs> it was an interesting touch tone because the times I've thought about it in the past are, at least in my experience, has, has largely been times I'm like, man, you're missing an opportunity here to really be Catholic. Mm. I've had some really good experiences, too. One of the institutions where I trained at was a Catholic hospital. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because, especially in in family medicine training, uh, this was actually kind of in the OB realm. Um, Just a a little story, we had a a pregnant lady we were caring for, and ultimately uh, she found on ultrasound that the baby had anencephaly, Mm. which is a a malformation that generally is not compatible with with life longer than minutes or hours. Yeah. And so the unfortunately the standard of care in that community was early induction, which is kind of a inducing abortion by delivering the baby early. Um, but the Catholic hospital, all the nurses on the OB floor said, well, you can't do that here. <laughs> uh, and they're not all Catholic. Some of them were, but they knew right off the bat. This is you, a no-go. This is a no-go. This is yeah. an abortion. We cannot do that. We won't do that, which was so – I loved it because mm. a lot of times, at least for myself in training, you kind of feel like an island. Mm. Uh, you're walking on eggshells. But here you're like, gee whiz. You know, I, I do have other people who are who are advocating for this. It was a really good opportunity also to talk to the other residents that I worked with because they did not get it at all. (laughs) They're like, what is the deal here? I don't understand. Um, And so we had a really good discussion about how this was pretty much just an abortion with maybe different words that people like to use. Mm. And so really good experience there. On the other side, you hear about Catholic hospitals that get out of line sometimes and you couldn't tell the difference between a Catholic or a secular hospital with performing things that are against the the ethical and religious directive. So, you know, that's one of the big questions is obviously I think we, with both our stories, we expect a lot. We do. Our expectations are high and shouldn't they be? And maybe they should be even higher than they are. Yeah. But, you know, I think a story that plays out in far too many communities where there's a Catholic hospital and a secular or a non-Catholic private hospital, that um, the physicians move back and forth between those facilities. And the Catholic hospital is at constant odds with, well, if I don't let them do that here, 
they'll take their business across the street yes. and we'll close. Sort of that, you know, no margin, no mission. Catholic hospitals have to stay open, uh, but they, they don't have to sacrifice their ethics to, to stay in business. We know that. Um, but I know that gets played out in America every day, and it is yeah. disappointing. I think to your point, we're missing opportunities to witness and to be great. Yes. Um, and I'm sure our guest is going to have some really fascinating insight and examples of that. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued because she definitely she's working in healthcare administration as a lawyer, so and as a nun. So good grief, she'll have some good good stuff for us. <laughs> um, I guess one of the other things we want to be sure that we touch on too. I think we, I get this idea a lot. I don't know. I'm probably, I'm probably not the only one. But when you see sometimes a Catholic institution, whether it be a college or a hospital or something, not living living up to the values that we expect, mm. you're like, I wish I could fix that. Why doesn't their bishop fix that? <laughs> um, and sometimes you you look at the bishops and you're like, I'm surprised. And so one of the things that I'm interested. To, to hear about as well that she she has kind of spoken to, to Tom a little bit about is you know the bishops have some real limitations mm-hmm. in in kind of keeping Catholic institutions in line but they also have some opportunities mm-hmm. as well so try and I, I'm interested to get get that story straight just to know what's really unreasonable to expect and what is very reasonable to to hope for and encourage in that relationship yeah you know I'm sure that all of us could think of things that are our priests and our bishops could and should do better. Yeah, why haven't they asked me yet? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and I yeah. had a conversation with my priest recently, and, and I thought I'd really caught him in an opportunity that he'd missed. And then he went on to explain to me the layers and layers and layers of challenges yes. to what I was suggesting. And I was humbled and gained newfound respect. Yeah. So I think we're going to learn, as we already know, being a bishop's not an easy role. Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean there's not opportunities. And so maybe, uh, maybe some of our bishop listeners will, will yeah. we'll learn from sister when she comes and on sometimes i think you know for the lay people maybe inaction does not mean it wasn't considered and decided against for good reasons and sometimes no means not now yeah, right that's well right. with that it's probably a good time to segue into our uh trivial question for this episode and not surprisingly the topic is catholic hospitals that's right yeah historically the church invented hospitals now you know we, we hear that on commercials and things all the time and to the casual listener, that may be a little tough to recognize. But this idea that you group sick people together, yeah. uh, even down to the, the nurse's hat, uh, has evolved. It's not worn anymore. Yeah. But that evolved because it was a sister's habit. Um, yes. But the church invented this idea we could care for people better if we got them in one building. Well, and that's one of the reasons why like the Hippocratic Oath has hung around for so long about caring for people because it was such a novel idea. Uh, before Christ, really the wealthy or kind of soldiers trying to keep them on the job, they got some level of health care, but it wasn't for the regular people. Yeah. And so the question is Catholic hospitals currently The 10 largest Catholic health systems operate more than 76,000 short-term acute hospital beds. So the question, what is the percentage of hospitals in America currently run by these big Catholic health systems? Uh, Great question. question Well, you're going to have to listen, listeners, to the end of the episode to get the answer to that uh, brilliant trivial question. So we hope you'll stay with us. We'll be back after the break on Dr. Doctor. And we are back on Dr. Doctor today with Sister Bridget Mary Meeks, native of Denver, Colorado, did undergraduate school at Davidson College in North Carolina on a a soccer scholarship. It seems like we should pause right there. So we're talking to a nun who's a lawyer who's a soccer star. Yeah, I think think that's D1, too, so that's pretty impressive. (laughs) Um, She joined the Religious Sisters of Mercy in 2013 served as the coordinator for the Department of Religion at St. Francis Health in Tulsa, Oklahoma, got a master's in science and bioethics in 2019 at the University of Mary, and then went on to do law school at Villanova, where she just graduated. She's got a special interest in criminal law, especially where it relates to health care in trying to care for human trafficking victims and people suffering in the cycle of prostitution. And she started or is starting a human trafficking response program at her hospital, which I was very excited to hear about. Sister, thank you for coming on Dr. Doctor. 
Thank you for having me. Now, our listeners, I know, are just, they're chomping at the bit, as they say, to know your story. So maybe we could begin with a little bit of your journey and how you ended up sitting here as the person you are talking to us. Wow. Um, well, I guess we could begin with my baptism, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that would take a long time. So, um, you know, I, I when I went to Davidson, my... Um, I guess to backtrack, when I was 10 years old, I wrote in my journal, uh, God, I know what I want for the rest of my life. Um, you, I, wow. I love God. Um, but then I proceeded to immediately also start detailing all the guys that I liked. And, um, <laughs> and I didn't want to leave any guy out. So I listed every single guy in, in my fifth grade class at the time. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and so, you know, I religious weren't around me growing up. Um, I didn't, I hadn't ever seen um, really a, a religious sister. My mom had taken me to Walburga Abbey um, in Colorado, well, just outside um, the border of Colorado and Wyoming. And so I had seen cloistered nuns, um, but I didn't feel called to that um, and uh, didn't know that there, that there was anything else. I just thought to be a sister meant you were um, cloistered on this, this set of land for the rest of your life, and which is some person's call, but I knew it wasn't mine. And so um, I uh, quickly supplanted the Lord with athletics and academics and um, <laughs> and pursued it truly as as a real love for um there was a certain innocence to it uh though it did quickly um override the lord but um unintentionally and so you know and soccer conflicted with church on sundays mm -hmm. at soccer one when i was tired from soccer um having been on a saturday and it was a sunday the tiredness from soccer won out um and uh, pretty soon, even when it was convenient for me to go to church, I no longer was um, in college. And, um, and, and yet, I, I still carried a holy water with me uh, to every soccer game and practice and would pray that the Lord would glorify what I did. Um, <laughs> that to me meant that I'd score goals and do well. But um, in time, he used soccer as the way in which he reached me again. And, um, and it, that included suffering and injuries and um, and it being ultimately stripped away from me when I graduated and all of a sudden this life I had planned um, was no more in some sense. Um, I had been working for it since the age of four and uh, competitive soccer was finished um, and academics, which I had succeeded in also for a period of time had finished after I graduated. And, and so I remember then uh, finally uh, returning back to I guess you'd say the very first first love and going back to church and um, experiencing adoration freshly again um, really for the first time since I'd been a child and presenting to the Lord the question of who am I mm. and it was the first time in my life I asked him to define me to myself and to tell me who I was um, and because I realized all these identities I had constructed as who who I was had had ended and yet I still was existing and so they weren't my essence um, and and then I, I proceeded to tell him that he wasn't allowed to tell me um, that I was beautiful that I was his daughter I, I listed all these like um, uh, traits that I didn't want to hear because mainly because I wanted to make sure I wasn't speaking for him and uh, and I heard back very clearly after a long listing of things he couldn't say um, are you finished? <laughs> and uh, and I, I was stubborn. And so I said, no, I'm not finished. And then I knew after sitting with it for a period, I couldn't think of anything further that he wasn't allowed to say. And um, I, I said, yes, I am finished. And then simply and quietly, I just heard, okay, you are mine. And I knew in that instant, I had never thought to tell him, don't tell me I'm yours. Oh. Um, and yet it was a summation of everything I wanted to hear. Um, and so I just started to pursue what that, what that would look like for me in my life uh, to be claimed by the Lord. And, um, and he led me to the Religious Sisters of Mercy um, uh, of Alma, Michigan. They had at that time a convent in Denver at the Denver Seminary. And Bishop Conley then was the apostolic administrator um, of Denver, and I uh, had grown close to him through various activities. We did the Camino de Santiago together, mm -hmm. and 
Um, and so I, I brought to him my vocational discernment and, uh, and he said that I first and foremost needed to look at the Sisters of Mercy. And um, right then his cell phone rang and it was one of the sisters calling him. And so he, had, he answered it briefly and then later um, hung up and said, I insist you speak with them now. And, um, awesome. and so he sometimes teases me and says he answered my call for me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, you know, I, Sister, maybe you could even give a little shout out uh, and explain your order to people who are not familiar. So I, I went to medical school at Michigan State and I did two years in Midland and several of my professors at a secular medical school were nuns, uh, sisters in your order, who were doctors. And it was really amazing for me to talk to my other medical students, and they're like, what is the deal with these ladies? <laughs> and uh, just a cool way to evangelize. Uh, just tell, tell folks about your order a little bit. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, do the, I'll tell about the order from kind of the way I, when I met the sisters. So as I said, Bishop Conley introduced me to them, and when I met um, the sisters in Denver, uh, they explained to me how um, our community professes four vows of poverty, chastity, obedience. Those are the three evangelical councils. But then a fourth vow of service of the poor, sick, and ignorant. And that uh, our community interprets that vow um, to pursue um, intellectual development um, to a terminal degree for each sister. Uh, so that we can give, a, give ourselves to be of service to the church however she asks in whatever way is needed. Um, and so at that point in time, the sister with whom I was speaking had several different doctorates, including one in agronomy. Um, and ha she had taught farmers how to farm in Minnesota and now was teaching seminarians how to be priests and um, with her theology um, doctorate in, or in liturgy and, and and she said she still used what she had learned from being um, a doctoral farmer. Um, and, uh, and it felt like in that moment that every single door in my heart was being opened. And this breath of wind was just breathing, breathing in me and through me because I had never thought, I, I thought of my mind of being in service. And I, I thought of um, my body, like, you know, giving of myself. But I just hadn't thought that I could actually give of my mind to the church in such a way um, that uh, my mind would go where I was told to go and that like that my mind would would follow the Lord wherever he asked me to go um, and to to imagine that as part of a vow um, to to give myself to such a degree for the poor sick and ignorant was transformative for me and so that's that's really um, why there are several different doctor sisters, uh, physicians to um, professors or wow. um, education um, uh, for um, like elementary education sisters, but it's, it's all looking comprehensively at the human person, recognizing we all um, suffer with ignorance and sickness and poverty at different times um, and in different manners. Um, and so um, it, it provides for a very fluid way in which uh, we can be of service but another way that I've loved uh, this vow is syntactically um, service of the poor, sick, and ignorant. It's not service to, um, but in our constitutions, it's service of. And I've grown also in my way of understanding um, to see that uh, not only as that I give the best um, and pursue um, the highest formation um, spiritually and intellectually, but I also give my weakness. And, um, and, and give that to the Lord as well. And so that my poverty and my sickness and my ignorance can in some mysterious way also be of service to the church. Um, but this is clearly and, the Brainiac uh, sisters. You know, I, I can see this. You know, it would be terrible. I could imagine Bishop Conley having to talk to two sisters, and he says to Sister Bridget, you're, you're going to this order. And then he says to the sister next to you, you're not going to this order. <laughs> you're going, you're, this is the Brainiac it's, order. It's a very cool, a very cool charism that uh, oh, I'm is. really impressed by. That's amazing. Uh, tell us a little bit, Sister, about your work in Catholic healthcare systems. Um, so my work in particular, um, first of all, preface it generally. Uh, our community is a refoundation uh, of the Sisters of Mercy. Um, in 1973, we were refounded. And uh, we have a special emphasis on comprehensive health care. Um, and, um, and so 
um, and that would entail the the healthcare of the, the entire human being, body, soul composite. Um, and so I was assigned to uh, as my first assignment um, to St. Francis Health System when I was a novice, really with with no medical background at all. Um, I, my um, major in uh, undergrad is early British literature. I could I could speak Middle English to you if you'd like, but I, I definitely can't speak uh, medical terminology probably even till today. Um, but uh, I I came here really not knowing what I do, um, and uh, um, it happened that our superior at the time, um, who I was assisting, she went away for two weeks, and um, uh, she was on the general council, and so she was the co-chair of the ethics committee. And she handed me the pager, and she said, "It's we don't usually get many calls on this, so I don't, I don't think you'll get one. But if you do, this is what happens." And um, and so, sure enough, while she was gone, there were about seven calls, <laughs> and four of them were urgent, and I had to arrange meetings, you know. And and so when she returned, and I was in touch with her while she was gone, but um, when she returned, I handed her my I and it wasn't until law school that I realized I had really written briefs on the cases but I handed her my the work um, of the cases that I had done and she took the paperwork and on top of it was the pager and she returned to the pager to me and said you're going to be keeping this (laughs) and um, and that was how I I entered into ethics I I had no formal background in it um, and uh, and loved it and had a a penchant for it um, and I love uh, St. Francis in particular, but comprehensively Catholic healthcare and the ministry, you know, the, the beautiful intersection of provider bringing Christ to patient and patient mm. bringing the, the wounded, vulnerable Christ to the provider. Well, amen, um, amen and, sister. Uh, now, I mean, listeners uh, that follow the news at all realize um, that your system has recently had a, a tremendous victory. Um, and a lot of people know about the candle. So maybe you could summarize what's, uh, what was going on there and what happened and what the victory was all about. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, it kind of goes to fiduciary duties, which we can talk about a little later as well, but ultimately, as uh, fundamentally, the, the right to worship God and His right to be worshiped. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a, there, there was an overarching question of, um, the difference between a living flame in the sanctuary candle and an electric light bulb. Um, but uh, we, we fundamentally believe that Jesus Christ is, is living and present in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and to uh, um, identify that and articulate it, uh, that's the living flame is to, um, to indicate that living presence um, in a way that you know, an, an electric light bulb really can't. Um, and uh, in fact, the general instructions of the Roman Missal have indicated that, um, and other um, instructive sources uh, in, from the USCCB itself, um, and canon law and church tradition, and um, and so that has never been a question in our mind that we would um, ever um, go electric. And so, the Joint Commission, which is an accreditation um, uh, organization uh, used by CMS, uh, which is a, a sub-branch of HHS. Um, Mostly to keep hospitals safe for the, the patient, idea. right? Right, so, yeah, and I mean, in the ideal form, it's you know, CMS is the agency that um, gives out Medicare, Medicaid funding, and and so they um, they don't want to give the funding to a place that would be subpar, hmm. um, and so they, but at the same time, don't have time to make sure that every individual institution and provider is providing sufficient uh, levels of care, quality of care. So they, they um, delegate that task to um, accreditation agencies, such as the Joint Commission, sure. um, to do that legwork, to confirm that that institute is um, operating at a level that would be uh, worthy of receiving federal dollars. Because, and, Sister, I know listeners are wondering, why in the world does the federal government care if a hospital has a candle burning? But it, it gets down to the safety issue with accreditation, correct? So there's a life safety code um, that uh, says that there um, cannot be an open f- flame within less than one foot distance from a nasal cannula. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and listeners, that's a and tube that goes in the nose that delivers oxygen. 
And so that was the, the main one that was being cited to us, that there were certain factual inquiries that could be had of how this sanctuary candle, which is double encased in glass with a top on top of it, um, is actually an open flame. Um, but, and also the factual inquiry of how a person with a nasal cannula would ever get within one foot distance of it when it's <laughs> seven feet up in the air. Um, and the person's already a compromised individual would have to climb a ladder um, <laughs> in order to, to get within that distance. On oxygen. Um, and, uh, and so all those factual inquiries definitely were there. They, they went against the compelling interests of the government. But um, ultimately, we don't know why, because it, it really wasn't, uh, it, it didn't have a rational basis to it, let alone um, a strict scrutiny, which would have been the, um, the requirement that the government would have to satisfy. It's always um, uh, encouraging to hear about the federal government protecting us. Uh, especially in our hospital care from sanctuary those dangerous candles. candles. Yeah. yeah, I've felt threatened many times. <laughs> you I know, mean, sister, I wonder if maybe we, we've got a lot we want to get into about the role of Catholic hospitals. We've got to take a little break, so we'll take a brief break and we'll come right back here on Dr. Doctor. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor and welcome to our discussion with Sister Bridget Mary Meeks, who is a, a sister and the Religious Sisters of Mercy and an attorney. Uh, so, Sister, continuing our discussion about Catholic hospitals, you know, in, in a simplistic way, what does it mean for a hospital to say we're a Catholic hospital? So, in order to be Catholic, um, the local ordinary uh, has to grant that hospital permission in order to use that title. Um, and so uh, that's where we, in the history, we've kind of seen um, certain instances, uh, very few, where a local ordinary might say temporarily um, uh, until you can satisfy my expectations of what it would mean to be Catholic, we are removing this title from you because you are not operating as an extension of the church. Um, and now, now sister, uh, you're an attorney, so we'll, we'll we'll stop you. You say ordinary. We would usually say bishop. Yes. Um, and you yeah. selected ordinary because that's a, that's part of their role. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, so the the bishop of a diocese uh, sure. would would be the one with the the jurisdiction of the name, who has authority over the name of Catholic, um, and and in a particular way, education and and healthcare. Um, are uniquely entrusted by Christ to the bishop. Uh, it's part of the divine mandate wow. uh, that Christ gave to, to the apostles. Um, heal the sick, curate um, infirmos, he tells them, like as, as a command. Um, and so they've delegated that now to these Catholic entities um, to participate ultimately in the healing ministry that's been uniquely entrusted uh, to them as princes of the church. Um, and so they have the, the authority over it of what it means to be Catholic and what it means to be extending Christ's healing ministry. Um, and ultimately, that's, that's really what it means. Now, um, the Catholic hospitals are going to be nonprofit because they're not in it for making money. Uh, they're in it for serving Christ um, and his people um, and, and serving his people with Christ himself. Um, and so what that means then as a nonprofit corporation, as opposed to a for-profit corporation um, would be that uh, they, they they both would have fiduciary duties. Corporate uh, for-profit corporations and nonprofit corporations have fiduciary duties of uh, loyalty and care, um, and that is what happens with any faith-based relationship, um, whether it be a, a trust, guardianship, um, uh, any type where where the control is separated from the owner. Um, and so in for-profit for corporations, the owner is the shareholder and the, the controllers are the board of directors and the officers. Um, and so the controllers have responsibilities to the shareholders um, of uh, loyalty, uh, meaning they have to put the shareholders' interest above their own um, and care. Um, and if they don't, um, and if it can be proven, uh, the shareholders then can sue uh, the officers um, uh, and or the board um, for breach of those duties. And, and a lawsuit could look like financial, which you would think of kind of just immediately, but it also could be an injunctive relief, which would be asking the court to command um, a certain action or inaction um, of, um, of the, um, the board of directors or the officers. 
Um, Sister, is that really the main uh, hammer, I guess, that mm-hmm. the, the bishops have, is they can just remove the right for a hospital to use the, the phrase Catholic? Um, or does I think the- right now that's the only one that, we are, that we've used or been aware of. Mm-hmm. The, and, and unfortunately, you know, no, no bishop, uh, no one ever wants to see that name removed. Um, because, and, and, and it's in many senses, you know, if you ask the question, what does it mean to be Catholic healthcare? Healthcare can't exist without the church. Um, the, the Catholic healthcare um, is the model um, of healthcare. Um, and you know, hospitals, uh, it's well understood that the first hospitals, uh, as we know it today, came from the church. Um, and in fact, uh, there's architectural, hospital architectural and design magazine um, a secular magazine explained the floor plan of hospital floors, um, how they um, are direct uh, descendants of Catholic hospital floor plans, though a little different today. <laughs> so uh, the, the Catholic hospital floor plan in the Middle Ages um, had beds that radiated off of the altar. Wow. Um, and it was to, and this article um in a secular magazine said that somehow that altar participated in the healing process oh. um, of the patient facing the altar. Um, and that today that alt- that floor plan still persists, but instead of the altar, um, it, it's the nurse's station. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's fascinating. You can see how it still continues today. The altar used to be the nurse's station, you know, that, um, and so, so cool. the, the agony really that, that bishops are in, um, that the church experiences when we have to separate out that which should never be separated, what Christ has joined, you know, um, it's, it's a certain divorce that should never happen, um, is, is a great suffering that, that the hospital itself knows a bishop will never want to do. Mm. And so because of that, I think we're put in certain situations where um, sometimes the line is towed and crossed very closely and um, with that knowledge of that hammer um, is uh, sheathed uh, under uh, lots of locks. Um, yeah. and, um, and so the fiduciary duty actually is um, another tool where bishops can look at um, how they might be able to assert their authority um, over Catholic hospital to ask them to do something um, and through an injunctive relief or, or even saying I could do this to them and to let them know, you know, it's not just stripping your title, but I have something else in, in, in my toolbox here. Um, and so for a nonprofit, now I said that for for-profit, shareholders are the owner. Interestingly and beautifully, in nonprofit law, um, there are no shareholders. Um, the owner of the nonprofit organization is the mission. Mm. And so um, the board of directors and the officers have duties of loyalty, care, and obedience to the mission of that entity. Um, and Bishop would be able to plead special standing as a representative and a vicar of the Catholic mission of healthcare. I um, love it. Because that, you know, so often when you hear headlines and you're like, you know, why doesn't that Bishop do something about this? <laughs> um, I think a lot of times we on the outside don't recognize that there's really limited options sometimes as what what they actually can do unless you go all the way and just sever ties, which is mm-hmm. imprudent in, in some cases, I'm sure, because then you have no conversation whatsoever after that. Right. So this yeah, is this true. sounds like a novel approach to help the bishops influence Catholic health care in, in a new way. Yes, yeah, Um, to really open up dialogue. I'm sure listeners can think of examples of Catholic health systems that are more or less Catholic. Um, And there have been some isolated instances of late, I believe, uh, where bishops have become very involved in the identity um, of systems that are not not necessarily adhering to the teachings of the church. But that's a tough spot for any bishop to find themselves in, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, so just to even expl- explicate how there's an overlap with fiduciary duties and, and theology, um, the, the living flame example, um, on one hand, you could look at it purely from a li- religious liberty argument. And mm-hmm. that's, that is what, what we went with and, and where I would uh, go again and again and again. Um, however, also our mission at St. Francis is to extend the presence and healing ministry of Christ in all that we do. And, and we have duties 
um, of loyalty, care, and obedience to that mission. Um, and so uh, the very act, you know, you only blow out that candle when Jesus is no longer present in the tabernacle. Um, and so fundamentally, the very act of extinguishing the candle would be going against the mission of St. Francis. Mm. Um, and so uh, you could look at that and say, not only is this a violation of our religious liberties, but it's a violation of our very essence, of, our, of who we are uh, as a Catholic healthcare organization, um, legally speaking. You know, when, um, I hear, when I hear you describe that, I think of that bizarre interface between the federal government, does it get more secular than that, and um, the tabernacle. And the presence of Christ, and you know, you've got people on the one side of that discussion who would argue this stuff doesn't even exist, and on the other side, you have people that are fighting with all they have for their their freedom to burn that candle. What a what a tough interface of forces. Now we know which of the forces is greater, uh, but still, that's a, that's quite a battle of the titans, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I. Um you know, it's it's the the walking on the waves. Uh, the, the waves are tall, absolutely. Um, but our, our God made those, and um, and with our eyes fixed on Him, um, we we can we can walk on top of them. Sister, I guess um, another thing I wanted to cover while we have you here, you are starting a program at your hospital there about a response team for human trafficking. Mm. I know clinically I've been in situations where the whole care team, I'm thinking of the emergency room in particular, unfortunately everybody kind of sees what's going on, whether it's some type of domestic violence or even more formal trafficking of some type, but there's not a clear action plan. And you know, on, on the medical side of things, a lot of times we have to, we can encourage, we can approach, but really the woman has to decide now is the time to leave. It sounds like you're you're trying to bridge that gap by having resources available when these people are identified. Can you tell us about that program you're starting? Yes, you know, interestingly, um, this is also kind of couched under my understanding of fiduciary duties, uh, particularly of care. Um, when I was in uh, studying bioethics, uh, th this idea was presented to me actually by my professor. Then at the time, he. He had a side project for me. He said, you know, I, I was getting this case as a bioethicist and I couldn't find the answer. I want you to, um, to do the research and to tell me your thoughts on it. And so um, he is, the case was done and closed. So it was a post-mortem kind of. And he had also been brought in after um, the case was done and closed. Um, and uh, it was a matter of a Catholic hospital, um, their identity being stripped. Um, uh, actually uh, surrendered um, uh, because they had had a prostituted individual um, come through their doors regularly um, in the process of giving birth and uh, she would be on drugs the baby would be born uh, on drugs as well, DHS would be involved uh, the baby would be separated from the mother mother would be discharged and you know a year later she'd be back in pregnant giving birth on drugs and it was the same routine she had multiple abortions on her chart um, and she was in her young 30s um, and so one of the the last time she came through those doors um, the ethics committee uh, got together um, and decided to sterilize her um, oh my. and so the bioethicist asked me my professor asked me to try and understand what what was the false good in, in that pursuit because they certainly weren't intentionally pursuing direct harm. So what was it that they had bought into that, that was a perceived good that ultimately wasn't? Um, and it really was, it took time for me to sit with it. At first I was so repulsed by the idea, I didn't even want to, to think that, um, that there could be a, a false uh, good in it. But I, as I sat with it, I realized the sorrow that the staff must have been encountering um, and, and a certain despair of uh, this patient coming back in, coming back in, and then only being able to treat the, the physical um, and not be able to do anything to change the social issues or to uh, provide um, a change in life for this individual. And I think that ultimately they came to the decision that doing something is better than doing nothing at all. Mm -hmm. um, and they did an evil. 
Um, and so when I sat with that and started to realize the vulnerability that healthcare professionals are in and dealing with um, this type of situation, but other, other situations that lead to despair and sorrow for the physician and the providers, um, I, it, the desire to create this program came from both a love for that vulnerable individual coming through the doors, but also a love for the vulnerable individual treating the patient of wanting to provide an outlet of care um, uh, so that the physician and the providers would be able to funnel their their good desires of caring for this individual in a way that would be to her um, her flourishing. So that was the foundation for why we started the program uh, when I realized that St. Francis Health System didn't have one. Um, and so ultimately, first, it's educating all staff um, on what the signs and symptoms of sex trafficking are, um, and then also equipping them with uh, certain resources and how to respond, um, at least the ones who are in direct patient encounters. Um, but you know, Sister, I, I would imagine most listeners, even now, as much as we've talked about sex trafficking, would, would still think that's a theoretical thing that happens in the movies, that it, it's not real. Um, but what would you say to listeners, maybe by way of examples that you've seen of very real sex trafficking of, of human persons? Yes, yeah, well first I'll just give the figures now. I can give one figure definitively. The other is gonna get fuzzy because this is coming from memory now. But 43 million persons are estimated um, to be human trafficked worldwide. And that incorporates labor trafficking um, and sex trafficking. 79% um, of, uh, of that human trafficking is sex trafficking. Wow. Um, and so, um, now, now is where the fuzzy memory comes in. Whatever the math is of 79% of 43 million, mm. um, that's the number currently estimated, um, and it's an underestimation because sure. uh, it's really impossible to, to get the full figures of those who are currently being sex trafficked worldwide. Um, and that the population of that, you know, if you were to look at what does that mean contextually, it's uh, more than the populations of London, New York City, Dallas, um, LA, um, the state of Kansas, the, the state of Oklahoma, um, and I think a few other in there combined, but combined. all to say it's massive numbers. Um, and so that's the current. And so then, you know, even when I thought of that, I thought, okay, sure, but this is like Thailand and stuff, right? You know, we're talking like third world countries and ex-Soviet countries and <laughs> China and not, not like that amount in America. And so I wanted to look at what are the, the um, countries of origin from which sex trafficking be and um, the top three nations of origin, um, according to the Department of Homeland uh, Security, uh, is the United States, Mexico, and the Philippines. Wow. Um, and uh, Mexico and the Philippines are, are intimately connected to us. So um, we are a destination nation for sex trafficking, but we're also in, uh, an origination uh, nation of it as well. Um, now, practically what it could look like, um, just this past weekend, we had a 15-year-old uh, come through. She was complaining of cramps, um, and uh, they did an ultrasound, and she was 10 weeks pregnant. Now, the name she she gave, we didn't have a, a record on her, um, and her the person she was with, uh, who was her boyfriend, uh, gave a different uh, date of birth, um, and she corrected him. The date that he gave would have made her 19. The date she gave made her 18. And so, um, but she was quite timid. And um, so the nurses called me to, to come and support them. Uh, they were doing a great job, uh, but they had, despite all their efforts, they weren't able to really crack, uh, crack through. Um, they had separated her from the significant other, um, her, her trafficker. And, um, and when I came in, she had just gotten the ultrasound print out and she's looking at her baby. And, um, and that was, that was the breakthrough for her. Wow. Um, and, uh, though still it, I'm talking with her and I spoke with her for about an hour of really trying to, and, and it, there was nothing. It was, you know, I'm 18 years old, I'm behind in school I'm finishing things up. And I mean, it, all of us were like, well, maybe this is just an inappropriate relationship. It just, you know, like the, he might be emotionally abusive, but we could be wrong. Um, and, and this is us coming from being the ones who are studying it day in and day out. Um, yeah. And so then ultimately I say to her, um, you know, you have this new life in you. 
and and we want we want peace for you and we want peace and flourishing for this baby Mm. um and she started crying and then collected herself and and still wasn't giving anything so we had to run some other tests and they sent her back out to the waiting room while they ran the test because we were slammed with uh uh person's in and didn't have a, a bed for her at that time and so when she went back out to the waiting room she was rejoined with the trafficker and uh and we w- if we had had any signs you know that this wasn't uh or that this was trafficking we certainly wouldn't have done that but we just weren't able to find anything um meanwhile though i went back to the convent and about an hour later the phone rings and she's gone back up to the triage window and now she gives us her real name and she gives us her real date of birth and she says she needs help. Mm. Um, and so it, it just, it, um, they say it takes on average seven offers before a person is able to, to receive the help for an out. And we don't know if that's, if the person falls within the average, uh, if we're time number seven or if they're outside the average, you know, so, mm. but we just know that it, it takes a lot of offers. Wow. Um, and it, yeah, it, it can be uh, a UTI that's gone untreated. Um, it, it, it really can be anything that brings the person in. Sister, so. that's a that's a beautiful story, and I think that hopefully you guys are going to be a, a leader for the healthcare system nationwide to have response programs to address that. You know, in in the last minute or two of of our conversation, I wonder if if there's any resources, uh, especially for the human trafficking, that we could point listeners to if they want to learn more or if they are inspired to try and bring this to their community. The one resource that I recommend over and over and over again, now granted, um, there can be colorful language in the videos um, uh, because it's it's direct interviews, um, but it's it's a website called thelifestory.org and all spelled out, put together, thelifestory.org. Um, they, um, this organization wanted to find, uh, they had this idea that there must be repeat markers in sex trafficking uh, where there are opportunities for intervention. Um, that could be predictable. Um, and so they interviewed um, dozens upon dozens of sex trafficking survivors, and they did find these points of intersection. And one of them is healthcare. Um, and they uh, did video interviews of them for all of these points of intersection um, that are very compelling. And the message that, particularly with the healthcare one, that I, I always emphasize to the staff and would emphasize to anyone interested is it's not rocket science. This is a relationship. And, and it's really identifying the dignity of the human in front of you and saying, I see you, I hear you, and I care about you, and I'm worried. Um, and so there's uh, one of the interviewers, persons being interviewed said that the doctor just said to her, are you going to be okay? And she said, at that moment, I couldn't admit what was happening in my life. She said, but I never forgot that he noticed and that he asked if I'd be okay. Wow. And, and it, that, it seems like, you know, that was nothing. You know, you would go home and not even realize, like, what that seed did. But decades later, she's talking about a doctor asking if she'd be okay. Wow, so beautiful. I just would like that to be the takeaway, you know, to not feel overwhelmed by it, but to just put your heart out there and to let them know they're cared for. That's beautiful. Well, Sister Bridget Mary Meeks, we can't thank you enough for your work and for you giving us some time and joining us here on Dr. Doctor. Well, thank you all. It's been a privilege. Thank you. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and welcome to this episode's answer to the medical trivia question, which not surprisingly deals with Catholic hospitals. Yes. How, what percentage, I'm a percentage guy, you know, Tom, <laughs> Tom always makes these questions with like A, B, C, D, or E options. Give me one percentage. So what percentage of hospitals uh, in America are run by Catholic health systems? The answer is 15%. But a more practical term is one in seven patients That's are right. cared for in a Catholic hospital. That really, 15% I think is hard. But one in seven, that's easier to get your brain around. That's so an awful lot. We're still a driving force in the delivery of health care. And, and it's... I think a huge opportunity for us to showcase to all these patients, who a lot of them are not Catholic, what it means to be Catholic. Talk about evangelization. Yeah, great, you know? great point. Well, as we think about the top three takeaways, you know, what comes what comes to mind for you? You know, the the thing that uh, I wish we had to talk more about. We'll have to have to delve into this more in the future. Is um, using this new fiduciary duty. And fiduciary means money. 
Yeah, that's right. It's simple. Trust and money. Yeah, that's right. Um, For the the Latin people, fiducia. Um, But using this new angle to hammer on non-for-profit corporations to get them to do what their mission says to do. And uh, I love that sister, you know, what a beautiful way to use a a legal mind Mm. and a religious vocation to help the church and help the bishops keep Keep Catholic healthcare doing what it should be doing. Yeah, that is that is beautiful. How about you, Chris? It, it, what what's number two? Well, I, you know, I'm not sure why, but when she said she was describing bishops and she described them as the princes of the church, it it sort of caught me. Um, and it's true, they're they're the descendants of Peter, uh, the bishop that you see at confirmation or at some other sacrament uh, at your parish could very well be the Pope one day. Um, and they're the princes of the church to carry on that that sacred tradition. And I just love that phrase, the princes of the church. We should we should remember that when you say hello to your bishop, you're speaking to a prince of the church. Yeah, it's uh, our culture is so casual, but that is, there's it's elevated. Yeah. That's a significant role. And then my favorite takeaway was she described the waves being tall. Um, and that God made those waves, and with his help, we can walk atop them. Um, and, and I think she was describing no battle is too big when right is on your side. And they took on the federal government over the religious freedom of burning their candle. Isn't that and, incredible? And, and the feds backed down. You can't beat City Hall? Well, you, you can when God's on your side. That is pretty cool. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. Please remember to pray for your bishops Mm. and uh, pray for your local Catholic hospital because they need it. You can find all of our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click Episode Archive at the top. We have 300-plus episodes, and you can search by topic or by guest. And if you'd like, you can actually watch us on video on drdoctor.org. Click on that. You can also submit a question if there's something you'd like us to speak to. We'd love to hear from you. This is Dr. Andrew Mullally. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. This episode of the Seek 23 podcast was produced by Spoke Street. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com. Have you dreamt of visiting the places where Jesus walked or where the saints made their marks on the world? Trust your trip to the Pilgrimage Company that more priests, Catholic authors, speakers, and theologians trust. Select International Tours. For 36 years, Select International Tours has provided the very best in pilgrimage travel, including centrally located hotels, the best local Christian guides, and unparalleled access to sacred sites and cultural experiences. Selectinternationaltours.com is the first step on your next pilgrimage.